This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, Episode 8, covering Uprising 2010. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling RSS feed or on the on our own Open the Voice Gate RSS feed on the podcast platform and device of your choice. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears, and I'm joined, as always, by Case Lowe. Case, how's it going? I can't believe it's episode eight of this series already. There's a part of me that is immensely proud that we've been doing these shows and how the shows have turned out. It's been a really enjoyable project from multiple aspects. But we also started this project because I was like, well, I'll have a few weeks on my hands. We might as well give this a shot. And we're now in the thick of things. We're approaching the one-year anniversary of Dragon Gate USA and there is no end in sight for this project, which is good <laughs> on one end because I think people are really enjoying these. and At least I hope they are because they've been really fun to record. I like that I can talk to Mike every every week now. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, man. All right. Yeah. No, I'm going to have time on my hands for a while now. But that's OK because the shows have been good. The show we're talking about tonight continues the trend of good shows and i'm with my buddy iron mike spears i can't complain too much yeah it's one of those things that when watching this show i was like oh wait the next show is enter the dragon 2010 we've we've now covered year one of dgusa and i thought like originally and of course how things have gone that this would be something that we'd be doing for like a month and then we'll come back and revisit it whenever there's been like a slowdown or anything but hey i'm i've been really enjoying this i i know that this was for me some like reliving a uh, part of like my wrestling and I hate the term wrestling heritage or history but it's something that I experienced in real time and knowing like when you came into Dragon Gate and all this it's kind of cool to take someone back and then go through it and I also kind of talked to Aaron Bentley about this because he's doing a similar project about Smoky Mountain about how if like there is kind of like I do feel a little bit like a responsibility in a weird way about because people don't talk about Dragon Gate USA case like like when we've gotten like these responses on twitter which has been awesome and people have been gone back and and like talking and watching these shows no one like talked about like these shows for about a decade so i'm really glad that we're doing this i feel like that this is something of like importance for wrestling and i think this is also something that if you're someone who is a newer dragon gate fan i feel like that this is like an important period to understand just because a lot of stuff that happened over this like five-year period set up the company to today like you could there's through lines i think through it and 
as always, it's just a blast to hang out with you once a week, talk about a show we watch, then go through it pretty granularly and talk about the events of the day now almost a decade ago. So this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, a lot of the podcast and a lot of the writing that we do on VoicesOfWrestling.com exists as much for it to be commentary in the now as it does for archive purposes. I mean, when the when the product in Japan was really bad in 2017 and early 2018, I mean, I gave legitimate consideration to not covering it and, and taking a step back. And, you know, I, I left uh, this podcast for a while for a multitude of reasons, mainly just I, I did not have time to do this on top of my school and then with the writing I was doing for the website. Uh, but there was a point where I didn't even feel like doing the writing because I was just not enjoying the shows. But, it, you know, there's an, it's unfortunate in a sense, but I also take it as a badge of honor. You know, if nobody writes or, or if I don't write about these shows, then probably nobody's going to. And then it's a lost era in history. And I think it's really important that we document all of this. And now we have a decade of hindsight with, with all of Dragon Gate USA since the inception. And it's really fun rediscovering Davy Richards. I mean, for Mike, <laughs> he lived through this. For me, I, you know, really got into DGUSA towards the, the last year of the product and watching these first year of shows, it flooded me with a lot of really good memories of a time where I was just consuming so much wrestling at such a rapid rate. And I dug out my wrestling DVDs from the garage a few weeks ago. And I was like, Oh, that's right. I have, you know, the first four shows and then, you know, a scattered amount of DG USA shows on DVD. And when I was, you know, a DVD guy, you know, I just watching those shows over and over and over again and never getting sick of them. And now being able to go back and watch some of those shows as well as watching a show like uprising, which I had never seen before. It's been a blast. Yeah. And this is just, interesting time period also like we talk about like documenting like history and we're also like living in an age where now more people are connected and more people i feel like with what dragon gate has done towards western audiences there's i don't feel like it's the same amount of influx as it has been in the past certainly during this period there was a heightened like awareness of dragon gate and then during the Ustream days and the tail end of that there was a heightened thing but we're seeing more people come in and i think that's like a cool thing that be able to take a look back at something that people might not have experienced and i think that that's really cool and yeah especially a show like uprising which i think we both said you you know you didn't watch i had no memory of watching this whatsoever it was really nice to go back and do this so changing gears just for a second we are now this show happened on may 8th 2010 and the last show we covered was on may 7th 2010 so we don't have as much of a timeline or news stuff but there is some stuff we need to get into i know case you've been looking around to see what was the general landscape and events around dgusa and around the end days so i just want to pitch it to you so we touch base on where things were going into missagua ontario canada at the international center this night march 29th 2010 coming fresh off the heels of a double shot in phoenix for wrestlemania weekend gabe sapolsky announces that bb hulk will make his next defense of the open the freedom gate title on may 8th in toronto against masada yoshino as we know yoshino has been on a hot streak after losing his first two matches in dg usa he's been scoring falls left and right and now he has a chance to go for the top title in the company 
match announcements would ensue, including on April 13th, Masaki Mochizuki versus Akira Tozawa is announced for the May 8th show. This is a huge singles match given that Mochizuki is the veteran of Dragon Gate and Shima has been touting Akira Tozawa as the future star of the company. They collide in a one-on-one match. Speaking of Shima, April 21st, it is announced that the Dragon Gate Scout Caravan a personal project of his will be landing in Toronto on May 8th. Shima tweeted that he hopes to find a new member for the Warriors unit in Japan through these tryouts and the Dragon Gate Scout Caravan, which is a fancy term for a tryout seminar, will also be taking place in Philadelphia on July 24th and on Chicago and in Chicago on September 25th. So with that in mind, let's mainly focus on the Dragon Gate Scout Caravan for a second just to reiterate the fact that Games of Pulse, he seems to be loading up on American stars. It's it's present on this show, and it's present uh, behind the scenes as, as we get a little glimpse here in the Newswire that Gabe wants more Americans on these shows. Yeah, and I think that this is somewhat of a response to how we're now at the end of year one. We, we've always talked about like the four big American figures in the Young Bucks, uh, uh, Davy Richards, and then Grant Akuma slash John Moxley, kind of in those roles, and now we only have one of them left here. Jimmy Jacobs has become kind of a bigger role. He is all over this show, and he's ingratiated himself within like the whole unit battleground, as it's kind of called. And it, it just is like this is like the idea of at least from the Dragon Gate side and Shima, they were coming to a point where like they had Pack for a while, and they had all these people through Ring of Honor. We've talked about like. Jack Evans, Matt Seidel, uh, Roderick Strong, Jimmy Rave. Like, they had people come in through there, but you can't, like, forget, like, this part of this promotion, just as much as running shows and, like, Gabe thing, Dragon Gate was always looking for more people to come into Japan, come into Kobe, and like that. And this is something that I feel like we got to see immediate, like, rewards for on the Dragon Gate side. And then also, like, looking at the promotion like this, Johnny Gargano was already featured in the show in Windsor. He's kind of over the show here and it definitely does seem like to be a thing where Gabe knows that the Dragon Gate roster the ones that bring over like that's that's solid that's good people like Shima will always get the response that Shima gets but you're going to need to be able to have some stuff to do things that Gabe Sapolsky wants to do in the promotion so this I feel like is a really important moment and we're going to start seeing really we started seeing and at open the Northern Gate, but we're going to be seeing over like the next like four or five shows how important this talent caravan ended up being in my mind. April 23rd, Gabe Sapolsky announces that Mauro Ranallo will be a special guest on the May 8th Toronto show. Sapolsky goes on to say Ranallo is a 24-year veteran of broadcasting, getting his start in Western Canada with All-Star Wrestling in Vancouver and Stampede Wrestling in Calgary. Aside from his roots in pro wrestling, Morrow has become the voice of MMA, formerly for Pride Fighting Championship, and is currently calling the action with Strike Force on Showtime in CBS. Now, Mike... We do not get a Mauro Ranallo appearance on this show. So why do you think it was necessary that Sapolsky mentioned that he would even be in the building? Well, I think something that now we look at this at 2020 and, and Mauro Ranallo is kind of omnipresent, at least if you're someone who watches WWE content. He was such a big figure in Canada for a long time. He was a teenager who worked in like the dying days of Stampede. He, him as like the voice of pride was primarily what people at least south of the border would have known him for he was 
Seon with uh, Strike Force, and he was doing like he was the voice of Showtime Combat Sports at this time. So having him there, I don't know if it necessarily would have brought people in for this. I would say, but I think it was just like an important thing, like show like having Morrow here here and like do an appearance, which is something that frankly, until you brought this up, case earlier, I had no memory of whatsoever. But it, it would make sense. Like he had he had Jr. and the King in Chicago. And then getting Mauro Ronaldo in Toronto makes sense along those lines. At least in my mind. Like, do you think I'm off base in that? No, I was going to mention the JR and Jerry Lawler situation from Chicago, which is something that Gabe it kind of goes in and out of being good at, of his promotion having these really good optics of, oh, well, if, if JR, because, you know, in 2009, 2010 especially, but even now, you know, JR's stamp of approval matters to a lot of fans and a reason that I can't totally explain. I'm sure in 2010, Mara Ranallo seal of approval meant a lot to the Canadian people and maybe some, you know, lapsed fans of pro wrestling, current MMA fans, you know, maybe Mara was a draw there. It's the same reason that in Ring of Honor, Meltzer was getting Ring of Honor tapes before, before anybody else, because that was a time when being put over in the Wrestling Observer newsletter really, really meant something. So I think it's a smart idea to have at least the announcement that Morrow would be there in the Newswire. It's also smart that Gabe added on April 28th that on top of holding the first training seminar slash tryouts on May 8th, uh, DGUSA has decided to make this an even bigger opportunity. Shima and the Dragon Gate office will select the most impressive wrestlers in the seminar and give them a match on the bonus card that night. That means you have a chance to learn the basics of the Dragon Gate style, have a tryout match in, the, in front of the Japan office, and then maybe get on the show that night. Mike, <laughs> this would pay off later for them. Uh, I will say now the people that got on the card were... Kenneth Crisis, Chris Chambers, Psycho Mike Rollins, and one Michael Elgin. None of them eventually landed in Japan, but this certainly seemed like something that Drangate would later go on to put a lot of time and investment into. Well, you brought up like the, the idea in Toronto and about this. Like, There were certain people that when one person's introduced, I'll talk about their history with them because there are certain people that Shima had their eye on in a while. And I know like Mike Rollins is someone that still had a relationship with Shima up until OWE Canada. Like, he's someone that has kind of stayed with that. And, of course, like, Elgin, like, people have to remember 2010, Michael Elgin was not really south of the border. I think he was doing IWA Mid-South sometimes. Yeah, he would have been doing Ian, and that was his largest promotion, really. Right. I don't know if he's in Cleveland at this point doing AIW. I don't think he's in Chicago doing AAW. He's working Ring of Honor dark matches and then, you know, gets an opportunity here. Yeah, so, I mean, this was an important thing, I would say, for people getting, like, their foothold in, like, the NDC, and especially, like, someone, like, for it as up and down and how in and out uh, Gabe Sapolsky could be for a while. Like, I just pulled up Chris Chambers' cage match because that's what we do on the show, and since then, he has appeared in House of Glory. He's done WXW. He's done Freelance. He's done House of Glory, and he's done... uh iwc so i mean it's paid off for like people like this and then just for like just thinking about like mike elgin where he was at in 2010 like this is something that like when you look at his cage match profile and i think this is kind of an interesting thing to do and you look at where it was in 2010 to how it drastically changes in 2011 and 2012 like this is like for for what for what i'll say and as how the uh, the tryouts and the seminars kind of change over time at this time of where the indies were at it pays off dividends like get in front of there because you look at 
how things were for Michael Elgin in 2010. He was working Alpha One. He did do uh, this can't be the right GCW. He did do Ring of Honor at the time. He did do some AAW and OVW, but his Ring of Honor appearances were he did a couple of dark matches. Then he was added into the House of Truth when they were filming at the uh, Davis Arena in Louisville, Kentucky. Mike, the GCW you were looking at there is great Canadian wrestling. So not at uh, all. Not at all. No, I, I, I'm sure a storied <laughs> promotion, but one promotion that I do not know the stories of, unfortunately. Uh, finally, before we get into Uprising, it should be noted that on May 8th, 2010, they were not the only indie running. Ring of Honor presented Supercard of Honor. This show features, uh, in the opening match, the Briscoe Brothers wrestling the All Night Express. This is a year before their rivalry really took off, but I'm sure that was a fantastic opener. Eric Stevens versus Grizzly Redwood, Sarah Del Rey versus Amazing Kong, a non-title match between TV champion Eddie Edwards and Christopher Daniels, Delirious versus Austin Aries, a 34th Street, 34th Street death match between Colt Cabana and Kevin Steen, a Ring of Honor World Tag Team title match between the Kings of Wrestling and the Motor City Machine Guns, and the main event, Tyler Black versus Roderick Strong. So, Mike, given the card we're about to discuss, you know what's on that card and this Ring of Honor show that that I just read to you, uh, which captures your interest more on paper? A show with, you know, CK1 versus Shingo and Yamato and a BB Hulk versus Masato Yoshino match, or the Kings of Wrestling versus the Motor City Machine Guns and Tyler Black versus Roderick Strong? I mean, oh, this is actually like a hard one. Like if I was given the plane to fly there and the ticket to the those, Kings of Wrestling versus Motor City Machine Guns, I right now I just saw what the result of that match was. Okay, I, I think I would stick with Uprising just because I saw that that R ROH World Tag Team title match was D was caused by DQ, and that would have really frustrated me if I went to New York just for the show. But it's like a 1980s All Japan match where it's really good, and yeah. then it ends in a DQ finish for political reasons. Like it feels very out of place in 2010 <laughs> given the finish, but I can right. assure you. That match is excellent up until uh, the eventual decision. And I mean, that DQ would have been because uh, Morrissey Machine Guns were still TNA. And at this time, you know, this yes. is how TNA did business with people. Like, you either would win or you'd do that. Uh, yeah, no, I, at least personally for me, and this would make no surprise to people who are familiar with me, getting to see Akira Tozawa versus Misaki Mochizuki first match in North America and what would become what I think is one of the more underrated series of matches in Dragon Gate history I think I would go for Uprising, even though Kevin Steen versus Cole Cabana in a death match is interesting. I know I've seen it, but I have yeah. no recollection of if it's good or not. I do remember watching that world title match between Tyler Black and Roger Strong after the fact. And I remember thinking that it was pretty good to decent, you know? Oh, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a Tyler Black-Roderick Strong match. I think your your floor is three and a half stars and your ceiling is four and a half stars. Right. I mean, there, yeah. you know, it's that's kind of their deal. But uh, let's let's get into Uprising if you are ready, because uh, that is all the news and notes we have for the back half of this double shot. Right. Okay, so there is one thing from Dave Meltzer from The Observer on the 17th that I'm going to use as a way to get into the show. The promotion re re returned to North America this weekend with shows in Windsor, Ontario, which drew only 200 fans. We talked about that last week. And a taping for the Uprising pay-per-view in July, which drew 500 fans in Mississauga, Ontario. I don't know if they got a special deal, but the Masaka building usually costs $8,000 to run, and there's a lot of added expenses for running showed in Canada. You would hope to draw more from the Toronto market for the first time Dragon Gate USA came, but it shows how difficult it is to draw for this type of show. 
From a financial standpoint, there are a lot of questions about the viability of the group going forward. They haven't built their base, and this is a tough time for independent wrestling. So I saw when I pulled up the card myself, I saw that uh, the uh, Super Card of Honor got about 1,300 fans. So definitely, given the weekend, and that was in New York, probably was a success for them. This, as we made the joke and we talked about on the previous show, this Toronto weekend was not a good weekend for DGUSA as a business. Like, I think that's pretty fair to say. Like, talking about them flying into Detroit and driving over the border. And then you have other people that would be getting over the border as well. I can imagine how hectic that was. And, you know, getting for, like, it said 500 fans here, and then a later thing said 450 fans. Even with what all happened, you have this is kind of like a growing pain show, at least business-wise, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough weekend when you look at the gate. I understand... A- why uh, Gabe Zapolsky and Dragon at USA would want to attempt this venture. Toronto had become a really strong Ring of Honor market. I think just a passionate fan base mixed with the fact that there are some really good Ring of Honor shows in Canada towards the end of Sapolsky's run. I get why you would want to push the uh, push the boundaries or rather push the border and, and get up into Canada, but it did not work out. I think the buildings that they ran and the crowd on, on this show was much hotter than it was on open the Northern gate. But even then the, the venue just looked vast and empty and there wasn't much life to it. So you're looking at shows that were literally poor draws and optically just a, a poor vision, but it's a, it's something we'll continue to talk about as this company goes along as some of the arenas they choose to run or rather the venues, it just, I don't understand it because you have these global superstars in a sense. I mean, you know, superstar is a relative term, but your Masaki Mochizuki's and your Yamato's and your Masato Yoshino's guys that carry themselves like big deals, like superstars and they're working in dingy, dimly lit venues and it's not like seeing a big band in a small club they just look like they're better than the situation they're in and this is really the first weekend that we start to see that issue occur with the company yeah and i understand that like this was like the international center so it'd be more expensive to rent but like looking at this venue you wouldn't think this would be much dissimilar from venues that gabe sapolsky has run before that certain costs much much less than eight thousand dollars like, it's just one of those things, and, like, the idea about these guys are being flown over from Japan to this for 500 fans and all those kind of things. You could start seeing where things might get a little bit free between them and Gabe, which is probably another reason, like, not saying that this is definitely reason, but probably a reason why Gabe was like, I need to find some North American stars just in case, you know? Well, yeah, and speaking of North American stars, the show starts out not with the Jimmy Jacobs promo this time, but with a Johnny Gargano promo. He's backstage. He says that he's Drangit USA's hottest free agent. He says he's going to sit back and watch the show tonight and then choose who he wants to represent as we get some sort of unit warfare brewing in the company. It's another really strong showing from Gargano in a short, quick promo to start the show. Yeah, he claims he's the hottest free agent. He's going to observe and work and see who he wants to choose for. He says that, like, it just for like Gargano, it's such a different thing because I know we talked about him last week, but Johnny Gargano here, we saw him on the uh, Open the Freedom Gate show where he was probably like one of the most outclassed people in the ring, but he had a presence of character that was already very divergent. And especially from like the Johnny Gargano power hour, like he knew what he was doing at a very young age here. And 
it's just interesting. Like I'm looking at like the full card, including the stuff that did not make tape, and he, uh, Gabe did not have Gargano wrestle at all this weekend, which I find very interesting. Yeah, that's an insane thing. Uh, I, I don't know if I, I feel like there was a story around this time that maybe Gargano got paid for these shows or maybe he was offered pay and turned them down because he didn't wrestle. I don't entirely know if that's this weekend or if that's a weekend that would come later on in the future mm-hmm. or maybe we already passed it. But the fact is, I mean, look at look at the two guys that Gabe is now building around. It's John Moxley and it's Johnny Gargano. And history has proven Gabe Zapolsky to be right. But in the moment, these are the two guys that can really talk. And that is what Gabe needed. Because, again, we have a roster of guys, Gran Akuma included, who can work and can work with the Dragon Gate guys if they're not one of the natives. But Akuma's not a master promo. Gargano and Moxley show off the bat that they can talk and they are capable of scoping out storylines with their words and then building uh, those feuds with their action in the ring. Yeah, and with that, let's go over the uh, dark match stuff you mentioned earlier. Chris Chambers and Michael Elgin defeated Kenneth Crisis and Mike Rollins. There was an eight-way free match with Brody Lee defeating Anthony Fiasco, Brent B, Cheech and Cloudy, Kyle O'Reilly... Uh, Phil Atlas and Extremo, we talked about Atlas and Extremo on the previous show. And Cheech and Cloudy were big guys at this time, especially in that area. I don't know how far of a drive it would have been from upstate New York to Toronto. I know that that's the same area that Brody Lee is from, but he's getting people at least in the area and at least have some sort of renown at these shows. So even if they weren't making the pay-per-view, people were like going, okay, it's worth going to go see that. But with that, we should get into the first match of the show. It was the match I was talking about earlier, which was the reason why my dumbass would have been up in Toronto, where Masaki Mochizuki faced Akira Tozawa. He defeated Akira Tozawa in 9 minutes and 47 seconds with a Shinsaikyo high kick. In case, this was a match that I knew, like, all right, I was going to really like, so I was already predisposed to liking it. So I just want to give the floor to you about this first. Well, I've got a question for you to start off. So Tozawa wrestles a tag match the night before. He wrestles Mochizuki in a singles match on this night. And then he flies to Reseda, California the next day and teams with Yamato and PWG's DDT4. They lose to the Briscoes in the first round of that tournament. But this is the foundation or or rather the beginning of Tozawa's excursion. There's a moment in this match where Tozawa's beating up Mochizuki on the outside and he screams in the face of a fan. And this is something that would eventually be incredibly (laughs) over in the American Legion Hall in Reseda, California. But you've seen a little bit more of this era of Drangit in Japan than I have. So I have to ask, is Tozawa's yelling something that he brought uh, with him that he was doing in Japan and now it's just over in the States? Or is this something that Tozawa just uh, did spur of the moment, and that's, in a weird way, how it shaped his entire excursion? He did do it some in Tozawa Juku. Like, he was kind of like the chant leader, because he would go like, ah, uh, because his big finish then was going to be a top rope senton, funny enough, that's his finish on WWE, where he does the pose and goes, goes ah, uh, ah, uh, Tozawa Juku dives. So there was a little bit of that, and, you know, I think he might have also, like, Tozawa is known as kind of an Americophile, so he, I wouldn't be surprised if Tozawa was someone who like watch videos of someone maybe like Chuck Taylor and maybe saw like, oh, this gets over a little bit. Like that wouldn't surprise me there. But yeah, like there is that moment that I was like, oh, he's doing the shouts here. And that became such a big deal here. 
I don't remember explicitly if the DDT4 tournament, like I've watched that show, I know I have, but I don't remember if he did that against the Briscoes, but at least from that one match alone, he's booked fully on every single PWG show that is not conflicted with the Dragon Gate USA show for the remainder of his time in the United States. Yeah, it was nice to watch this match. Just for whatever reason, it, it struck a bigger chord with me here than it did in the tag match where it's like, oh, that's right. Tozawa has blonde hair here and he has the red and white kamikaze gear that I'm such a huge fan of. And he's just a little more rough around the edges in a way that is really an, enticing to watch. I mean, here again, he's touted as the future of the company and he's wrestling Mochizuki. So... Uh, if you if you've seen Mochizuki wrestle, you know what's going to happen. He beats the ever loving shit out of Tozawa for <laughs> the entire nine minutes. It's a thing of beauty. There's a a moment in this match where Mochizuki's on the outside with Tozawa. He sets Tozawa up in front of the barricade and kicks him across the chest. And I am not being hyperbolic when I say that that kick echoed throughout the building. That was absolutely disgusting. I would hate to have my chest caved in by a sharp right kick from Mochizuki. And then, of course, the match ends with Tozawa getting knocked out with a with a high kick. Uh, there was one moment here that I didn't love, and it's a spot that I just don't like, where Tozawa did uh, his springboard headbutt spot, misses the headbutt, goes to do a dive. Mochizuki rolls out of the way, uh, does another dive. Uh, Mochizuki gets his knees up, but then Tozawa just kind of stands up and hits him with the senton. It's my, it's Tozawa's one flaw. It's a spot that I just never liked the way it yeah. looks. Other than that, it's a three and a half star match. It's a great opener on this show, and it's exactly what you'd want from this era Mochizuki versus this era Tozawa. Yeah, the apron, the apron Kara uh, Tozawa is something that he dropped pretty much after this excursion. Like that's like an interesting thing. Like you say, he's so rough around the edges you kind of see how he develops over this. And this will be kind of a fun thing for us to do over the series. And we might even, like, just throw it out there, go back and watch some of Tozawa's greatest hits in PWG as well, just because those are some incredible matches of the time. But you see this very raw wrestler. Like, last episode, off the top of my head, I basically gave the entire history of Akira Tozawa. Like, them, like this is why I was like, I'll let Kay's talk first, because my opinions of him are obviously bias but you see a guy at this time he's 24 still I, I think he turns 25 later this year against someone who's 40 41 actually and you really see a match that really shows one the greatness of Masaki Mochizuki because this crowd much more so than other times that Masaki Mochizuki showed up this crowd knew who Masaki Mochizuki was and he was over from the start and then you see like Akira Tozawa who like he has a preternatural nature of being able to find ways to connect to fans with, if he was thinking, hey, that that scream got a chant in Japan, I'm going to try it here, that shows a level of awareness there. Or if he saw, or he was scouting and saw like people like reacting and stuff like this, he already had the, uh, I wouldn't say he was fully crystallized here, but he already had like, the basis of someone that would become probably like such an important charismatic figure in the promotion that they had someone step into his role after he left the promotion. And I feel like that this is something that you see here. I went four stars, which, again, Akira Tozawa bias. I, I knew you would. I <laughs> knew as soon as I watched this match, it's a four-star Mike Spears match. Yeah, it's a four-star Mike Spears match. The thing I, I think about this is I'm going to be really excited when we get to the 2012 WrestleMania weekend because I think that these two, they have a one-on-one -on -one match there that blows this one out of the water. 
I mean, it's oh, funny. I mean, at that, at that point, Tozawa is a completely different wrestler. I mean, it's like watching a different human. And Mochizuki, in a weird way, is revitalized after his 2011 title run. It's really like watching oh, two entirely different wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So, like, this will be a uh, when we get to this episode. I just want to see what show this is that this will be in our canon when we get to it. All right, so this match is on, I think, Mercury Rising 2012. No, it's, Mer- it's on U- Ultimate Gate 2012, so that's that's about 15 episodes from now. We'll talk about this match again. Yeah. Stay tuned. Three, four months from now, your life won't be any different. You'll still be listening to us. <laughs> yeah, we'll maybe. talk about another Mochizuki versus Tozawa match. Right, right. So after this match, uh, we went backstage to Lenny Leonard and Chikarsen plugging the double main event. And I thought this was a good way of them kind of proposing this like at least the version that i saw was from a, i think was from like the dvd release so they, they left this in there but it was a good thing i think for like the pay-per-view audience to kind of still get a idea like if you're someone who's dropped off you're talking about like okay this is dragon kid's first chance to get back at shingo takagi and yamato and then we they talked about how yoshino basically was has been virtually undefeated since he dropped the fall in the end of the the uh Dragon Kid feud, and I thought that was a pretty effective use for like a one minute thing. Which I mean, on this pay per view, which is one of their shortest pay per views, by the way, like yeah, you taking time a, to do it's this. a two hour show. It clocks in uh, right at two hours, just about, which is really nice. I will say about this promo segment, they were factually incorrect. Lenny and Chikarasan are talking about how this is the first time Dragon Kid and Shingo will be able to get their hands on each other since Shingo turned on him. Which is not true. I mean, they had a few non-televised matches in Japan, which is fine if you don't want to count those because nobody's seen them. But they wrestled in the King of Gate finals on April 14th, a full month before this show happened. Shingo had already turned. Dragon Kid was now in Warriors, and they had wrestled. And it's the first real continuity lapse we've seen between Dragon Gate proper and Dragon Gate USA. And it's a small thing. I'm sure the people that were buying the show on pay-per-view, the non-DVD buying audience, they don't know and that's okay. But it it bothered me because I did know and it's not okay that they said that this was the first time they're going to be wrestling since the turn. Even if they had just said it's the first time in DG USA, great. That makes your company sound exclusive and exciting. But they just made a blanket statement that ended up being factually incorrect. And even though this is something that you picked up on, I didn't, this will become a problem with the promotion going forward. So very soon, would you say that this is one of the Cardinal sins? Yeah. I, okay. Then we got number yes. three. Cardinal yes. sin number three. I, there, there will be times later on in the promotion where I understand why there are certain continuity lapses. This is one that was just, it was just incorrect. And it just bugged me when I heard it because we had just spent time. I watched the show right after we recorded the last episode, or at least this part of the show I knew they had just wrestled on April 14th in Cork and Hall, so so don't tell me that. Just, ah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> All right, and then talking about things like out of continuity and, and weren't on DVD or on pay-per-view, next was a match that was only on DVD. This was for the live crowd. It was not on the original cut, I guess, because I did not see it on Dave Meltzer's version. It was Green Akuma defeating Tyson Dukes in 7 minutes and 48 seconds with the Oklahoma roll. Yeah, I guess Tyson Dukes really helped out the show with Maximum Pro, don't you think, Case? Why was Tyson Dukes so over in front of this crowd? He came out, and it was like Terry Funk. Like, <laughs> in any market, it didn't make any sense to me. And and I'm, you know, Tyson Dukes is someone who I've seen have very good matches in person, but it's also, it's Tyson Dukes. I mean, he is a, he's never really had a great match, but 
he was so over on this show. And, and I knew that, you know, the, the prior show we talked about, Oakland Northern Gate, you know, those Canadian guys were the most over guys on the show. But watching Mochizuki versus Tozawa, is like, oh, this is the indie crowd. Like, they're going to know all the Dragon Gate guys and whatever. And then Dukes comes out and, they're, and the roof comes off the place. I yeah. do not understand why. Yeah, and, like, that's the thing about, like, these Toronto shows because we talked about in Windsor, there was the same issue where, like, everyone kind of sat on their hands until the Toronto guys showed up and then also when Shima and Jimmy Jacobs fought. You know, it's just, like, a weird thing about this. Like, I know, I don't remember if they ever went back to Canada after this. Like this. No, might, no, this is it. This is it. So, like, that's, yeah. like, uh, it's just weird, you know, like, to the like extent where, like, this match, where I didn't think this match was good at all, to be honest. It just didn't do anything for me. And then, But Tyson Dukes was, like, Terry Funk and Amarillo. Like you said, like, it's just wild. So this is the tough thing about Drangate USA when it comes to scouting foreign talent, meaning American talent in this case, is Granakuma and Tyson Dukes had a fine match. If this was on the undercard of an AAW show, an AIW show, even a Chikara show, I don't think it would it, it it would be perceived as much better than how it was perceived here because you lump this in, you know, following Mochizuki versus Tozawa, and then two matches later is Quack and Jigsaw versus Pac and Naruki Doi, two or you know, four really elite world class wrestlers if you're being generous to Quack and Bush. So it's not that this match was bad. Uh, I like Gran Akuma coming out with John Moxley. I think those two together look strangely menacing. Uh, that's a good pairing mm-hmm. when you look at just the aesthetics of Kamikaze USA. But the match looks bad given what else is on the show. When in reality, yeah, I mean, I gave it two and three quarter stars. It, it was it was fine. But on this show, you can't have fine when you have Naruki Doi and BB Hulk on the card. It's just going to look far worse than it actually is. Yeah, and. I really like the idea of Moxley coming out of Akuma because Moxley is already kind of, he's not really, they don't really have like a distinct leader of Kamikaze USA, but at least for like Western audiences, like the idea is that you would go towards the person who is nearly North American, right? Like, I feel yeah. like, like this, they so have Gray Akuma who doesn't ever need to be on the microphone. You know, he kind of comes out here looking like a killer and you have, you have John Moxley the whole entire time going like, he's a killer. He's a killer. I can't do like his really raspy smoke smoking like three packs of cigarettes voice i don't know if John it would Moxley. be scary if you could that's like i love a good impression but i'm sure doing a john moxley impression has to destroy your vocal cords <laughs> in a way that only sanchi hoko boy and tomoaki hanma can understand that's maybe how their vocal cords became shredded is trying to sound like mox because <laughs> like i said in the last episode he's cincinnati white trash and i know that type well yeah no i mean that's kind of i family like up in that area so like i i get this but like it's like a cool combination in this match like it's not a bad match it's not my worst match on the show it just is such a discordant thing you you, you could probably guess what match i dislike more but is it uh, the match that's oh go go ahead go yeah ahead. it's just a discordant thing and then like akuma who has been built to like a certain level here having to do a cheating flash pin really kind of rubbed me the wrong way when we've seen how akuma kind of was like the killer of Kamikaze USA, and he has to do this to win. And it's just one of those things that I felt like was kind of frustrating, and it's just kind of very divergent with how they would portray Kamikaze USA for the rest of the show. You have the idea that it makes, honestly, it really makes, like, like Akira Tozawa makes sense. He's the young guy, and they get that over well, and you can 
you can say like, okay, yeah, no, it makes sense. He loses Misaki Mochizuki. But Grand Akuma having to having to cheat to win with a flash pin kind of rubbed me the wrong way finish wise. I completely agree. So after this match, we have one of the famed DG USA backstage uh, vignettes where Masato Yoshino is jumping rope in the shadows. And that was, you know, just it wasn't as ridiculous as the pensive look that we had earlier, but I thought that was kind of funny. And that led into the DQ match with John Moxley versus Jimmy Jacobs. This match was, uh, yeah, no, this match was a no DQ brawl. It was eight minutes and 22 seconds where John Moxley got the win after uh, Jimmy Jacobs hit the Contra code. Then Shingo Niyamato came out, destroyed him, and then John Moxley got the pen. God bless Lenny Leonard, because there's a line that he has in this match that is so clearly fed to him <laughs> by Gabe Sapolsky, probably scribbled on a napkin, where Lenny is going, you know, Moxley's had these strange women in all these different cities, plus he has these relationships with Tozawa, Shingo, and Yamato. He has sadistic charisma that just draws people in. And I get it. I understand what they're trying to do, but reading Gabe Sapolsky's newswires for eight years of my life now, that is that is a direct pull from Gabe. And if it's not, then Lenny has just spent so much time around Gabe that he is now sounding like him as well. I can see that, that happening. Was... I can see oh, Gabe God, rubbing yeah. off on you and you're like, oh, this is a main event anywhere in the world. <laughs> Lenny's calling his dinner a dream <laughs> match. It's like, oh, it's the mashed potatoes and the pork chop. It's a dream match anywhere. Um, <laughs> that was the high point of this match. There is a weird Jimmy Jacobs conundrum I'm having right now where I felt so much more invested in the Shima versus Jimmy Jacobs match that was a special attraction match to use another game term, but there was no feud surrounding it. There was no real build to it, but Jimmy Jacobs was just wrestling and I really liked that. And then he comes in here and there's been all of this build and all these promos. We know this match is coming and it's a focal point of the company now and I just didn't care because it was a Jimmy Jacobs brawl. And in a weird sense, like, it's not that, I mean, Jimmy Jacobs has had great brawls, but it I'm just so sick of this style of, of him because I think he could have really had an interesting post-ROH career of wrestling more. But instead, you know, a few shows in and we're already doing the brawls, uh, Moxley's, woman of the night who was never named and I didn't recognize her, but I actually thought she did a really good job. Mm -hmm. She gets speared at one point, uh, her and Jacobs go at it. And then it, it leads to the finish of Shingo and Yamato coming out, which I understand why Shingo and Yamato came out and ended up inadvertently giving, or I guess rather, uh, uh, you know, purposely giving John Moxley the win, but it's now we're three segments into the show. There's been Kamikaze USA on every segment and that is a trend that will continue as we go about the show. And that is just something to make note as we go along. Yeah, like this was my least favorite match. It was it was a competent brawl. I went two and a quarter on it. It just was one of those things that this was very much the Jimmy Jacobs brawl. And maybe I got my hopes up because of that Shima match, which was really kind of took me. I know it took me a back case how good that Shima match was. I was like, this is the kind of stuff I want to see Jimmy Jacobs do. I want to see Jimmy Jacobs like get in the ring from Naruki Doi right now. Like, that would have been something that would have been very interesting. But instead, we fall back to kind of, like, his old trade. And it just didn't feel inspiring. It felt like a very paint-by-the-numbers brawl. Whoever... Yeah, it was, it was void of emotion, which mm -hmm. is really strange given the charisma these two have and the fact that they were embroiled in a feud at this point. 
Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, uh, the whole Kamikaze USA being all over things, I can now very clearly see what Gabe is doing here. Like, basically making Kamikaze USA the big bad, which is also something that's very, like, we want to talk about Kanu of Japan. Kamikaze USA wasn't, he, weren't, Kamikaze weren't heels at all in Japan at this time. <laughs> they weren't the super babyface unit, but they were not heels. If anything, they were somewhat tweeners according to who you liked in the unit, you know? So, like, just was very disconnected with that. And so I was okay with, like, Kamikaze USA being, like, this kind of thing. It just kind of, like, I don't know, like, they spent a minute fucking around with a turnbuckle wrench. And I'm just like, what am I doing here? And when that, that happens in a brawl, I'm out. Like, I can say, like, that's a fine brawl. That's okay. But just, like, it was, like, it just got tiresome. And that's what really got me. I was actually very thankful for when I saw Shingo Niyama. I was like, okay, this match is over now. Sweet. So that was my th- thoughts about that. But, yeah. they didn't I name- don't know. Oh, go, go ahead, Mike. I was going to say, they didn't actually finally refer to Christina Von Aerie as Christina Von Aerie on commentary here. Yeah, I love that. That now, <laughs> a month after the fact, Liddy, like, again, gets a napkin slid across the table. Like, just so you know, the lady in Phoenix was Christina Von Aerie. We're working to do our homework to figure out who these two Canadian girls are. Again, I don't know who the girl was tonight, but I actually thought she did a really good job. But I... I, you know, we, we had a bigger Moxley discussion on the last show about his treatment of women. I am weirdly entertained by the idea that he's showing up to every town with a different woman. I actually think it's, again, maybe it's not something I would recommend doing today, but it's, right. it's very John Moxley. When we talk about the Cincinnati white trash aspect of him, uh, it kind of makes sense that he's going from town to town and just taking these women along with him. I should also note, the May 10th Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, I will read this quote. Top matches saw John Moxley beat Jimmy Jacobs in a no DQ match. Apparently, Moxley ran into the guardrail and his nipple was nearly sliced clean off. He was hurting really bad, but he got medical attention afterwards and should be fine. Mike, that was almost a, a terrifying injury for one John Moxley. Yeah, and I remember this happened, but I didn't remember it happened in this match. Did you see where he got sliced open? Like, it did not... You cannot tell that happened, but I know Moxley talked about it, like, after the point, like, because this was not too far after when Drake Younger almost lost his nipple in a death match. And these guardrails yeah. were not, like, your usual bike stand guardrails. Yeah, I don't remember it happening in the match. I did not know that this was an injury until I read that tidbit in The Observer, and, yeah, I, did, I didn't have time to go back and, and Zapruder Moxley's <laughs> possible lost nipple, unfortunately. But, Mike, I know your brand is never being horny, so I, I won't have you dive any deeper into this discussion. But <laughs> to quote our good friend Joe Lanza, if I would have lost one of my little pinkies, I think I would have been devastated. So I'm glad that Mox is still intact and, to my knowledge, uh, still has both of his ready, willing, and able to be used at any time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, th- th- that completely took me sick. So I was going to make a comment about john moxley's animal charisma like he has like this raw charisma <laughs> that like i know you are not a bar guy and no like, uh, other than like when you've had to do stuff for work where you're going to, like venues like this but there's always like one guy at a bar that has all the people around them and you like look at them you're like really them and then if you like start talking to them you're like okay i get why this guy is this way and they're definitely the people you could see like in a different reality ending up being a cult leader John Moxley has that energy, at least how Gabe Sapolsky's portraying him, and it makes sense in a weird way. 
Oh, God, yeah. No, I, I totally get it. I mean, it mocks <laughs> as someone that if he cut the right promo in front of me, I mean, I'd walk on my on my hands and knees, on my bare feet. And I have very sensitive, flat feet. It's very tough for me to, to walk, even on grass, really hurts my feet. But if Mox told me that I needed to march barefoot along with him on his journey uh, in order for him to save me, I would consider it because Mox is one hell of a talker. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense, like... Maybe I'm a little bit higher on Kamikaze USA and all this stuff than you are, but it makes sense. Like, in a weird way, it makes sense how he's all over these shows. He's kind of, like, going, like, guys, we're doing this now. We're doing this now. Fuck Tozawa. That'll become a thing in later in later versions of the show where we talk about Tozawa and Kamikaze USA because that's a storyline to be talked about later. It makes sense how John Moxley gets, like, Yamato and Shingo. Like, we talked about, like, this when they, they formed together. It's very clear that, like, he does not understand what's going on whenever, like, Yamato and Shingo talk, but, like, they get him in a way. It's a certain, like, I don't know if it's a pheromone, but there's a certain, like, chemistry and charisma that John Moxley exhibits, at least at this time. And I, I, I don't know if I would say that's the case now in AEW. It's a different kind of charisma, but at least in DGUSA, he definitely had freaky cult leader charisma. Speaking of cults, World 1, after the match, <laughs> BB Holt comes out. Uh, cleans house and offers Jimmy Jacobs a World One T-shirt. And when you think about World One at the time, right? It's BB Hulk, it's Masato Yoshino, it's Naruki Doi, it's Pac, it's Naoki Tanazaki, and maybe Kotoka at some point. Uh, Did Kotoka join World One? While you look that up, the point that I am trying to make is that even though Mike and I tend to love professional wrestler Jimmy Jacobs and not the brawler Jimmy Jacobs. Nothing about him other than maybe the fact that he and Hulk probably both look really good in eyeliner. Nothing about Jimmy Jacobs in World One makes sense. So Jacobs turned down turns down the shirt. He says, Yo, I'm gonna be my own man, which I don't hate that angle because again, we're still very fresh off of Age of the Fall at this point, and Gabe wanting to do something different with Jimmy Jacobs and wanting Jacobs to remain a singles act. I get and I kind of like that, but just the idea of him possibly donning the silver and gray that world one had is just very silly to me can you imagine him coming out to all all for one one for all like <laughs> i forgot how much that song is a banger like until like this show it's like yeah no this is like 80s montage music it makes sense for what these guys are doing uh Kato no, it's really good katoka joined world one which tells you a state of things and where katoka was he joined world one way back on october 13th 2009 Oh boy! Well, and World One doesn't. Well, does when does World One end? World One ends at the. Uh, it ends during right before the, the the former launch of Blood Warriors versus Junction Three. Wow, they're okay. They're a unit for that long. Okay, yeah, all they, right, very. They cool. will last for a couple more years in DGUSA. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. After this match, speaking of World One, we have Hulk on his side of his prep, where he is literally shadow boxing. He is boxing in the shadows. You could barely tell it's BB Hulk if they didn't like make it obvious that Masato Yoshino was training earlier. So Hulk is shadow boxing, and then in the midst of this vignette, and I've seen him do it a thousand times, countering clotheslines where he does kind of like a backwards cartwheel. Mm -hmm. But seeing him do that out of context, it is incredible. 
the athleticism that BP Hulk has to do that was like, it's just, I think sometimes we take wrestling for granted in terms of the athleticism that is on display in a style like Dragon Gate or otherwise. Like these are incredible athletes and watching Hulk just go from shadow boxing to flipping backwards like that. It's a dumb thing to be amazed by, but I was amazed by it and I have no issue saying that. Yeah, it's one of those things you're like, oh, wait, BB Hulk actually is an amazing athlete. And I think this is one of those things that we rediscover, like not necessarily even like the Cardinal since it's USA, but looking back at what kind of performer BB Hulk basically was up until 2014, you're like, this is a guy who could do some crazy things. And we'll talk about it. It's my biggest takeaway from the project right now is that BB Hulk, I forgot how much I loved this guy because we've been on, you know, five or six years now of broken down out of shape BB Hulk and he's had great matches in that time period but I just I completely forgot the worker that he was and all of the stuff that he was capable of doing and he has been I'm not in the best matches, but his stock has been elevated in my mind because of all of the stuff that he's been able to do that he can no longer do in the present day. Yeah, yeah. It's this and then like Yamato in 2009 are like my big takeaways so far from this, but that We'll talk about those two guys a little bit later, as we also have, after this match, Chikara Sekigun, or Saigun, as they like to pronounce. They had a match against the World 1 team. This was the World 1 block, kind of, of the show, now that I'm looking at it. It kind of is all World 1 all the time. It was against the World 1 team of Naruki, Doi, and Pac, and it was a win by... Uh, this is like, one of the first losses that Chikara Sekigun had, really, outside of, uh, you know how things were going and they beat the young bucks, but now they're kind of, we're seeing where they are in the pecking order as they're trying to become the best tag team in the world. As it was stress a lot as uh Naruki Doi got the pin on jigsaw with after the Bakatari sliding kick in 15 minutes and 35 seconds. And this is like a match that at this time, like watching this match, it's so interesting that they did like this style of match. And then the match they had later on, like right after this match, I thought that was kind of an incredible feat of confidence and understanding of the wrestlers knowing that this match would be entirely different from the CK one versus Kamikaze match. I've talked a lot on this show in prior episodes about the pro wrestling only's greatest 100 wrestlers ever project, or I guess rather the greatest wrestler ever project that they did in 2016. And I remember at the time Pac was a guy that was on my bubble. He was someone that I really liked that at the time was the best wrestler in the WWE and had a really good NXT run. And I liked uh, his PWG output. I liked the output I had seen from him in WXW and I liked his Drangate and a little bit of Drangate USA that he worked. I liked that output a lot watching this match. I, and, and then, you know, you factor in what he's done since leaving WWE, but watching this match, there was no one in wrestling that can do what he does. And if you look at the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards, in 2008, the best flyers were Evan Bourne, Kota Ibushi, and Mystico. Pac finishes 10th in 2008, and then in 2009, it's Kota Ibushi, Evan Bourne, Dragon Kid, and Pac. By 2010, the year we're in now, it's Kota Ibushi, Pac, and Ricochet as your top three flyers. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, if you look at 2008, it's Evan Bourne who, you know, I, I love Matt Seidel, uh, Seidel's not doing anything in WWE that is really that revolutionary for high flying. He's just doing it on the biggest stage possible. And then you have Ibushi and Mystico who 
are pushing the limits of what can be done in the air, but they're not necessarily doing it all that cleanly. There's a franticness to how they're doing it. Look at Dragon Kid. I mean, he's the most pushed guy on the on the most watched Dragon Gate USA shows because he's in the opener on both shows. I understand why he's there. But the fact is, nobody can push innovation the way Pac does while doing it as cleanly as he does. And there are moments in this match, they do a great job. And this is something that Dragon Gate is so good at, is when they really want that move to get over, that big spot to register with the audience, they hone in on it and they focus on it and give it all of the attention it needs. And in this match, it's Pac doing his uh, springboard twisting moonsault to the floor where he lands perfectly onto Quackenbush and Jigsaw. And it just seemed like the match slowed down and everybody took a second and they watched Pac go to the apron. They watched him leap and then they watched him do something that nobody else, nobody else in the world is doing. And then he does it perfectly. And then later on in the match, Jigsaw has... Uh, Naruki doing a bridging German suplex. Well, how does the pen get broken up with a Pac shooting star press? He is a master of innovation, a master of flight. He's someone that I think is now historically underrated given what time period he worked in and then the style he works. They are typically, I think, a little bit more shaded uh, or, or rather faded uh, than a respectable style of wrestling like grappling or whatever. It's bullshit. Pac is one of the best guys, one of the best flyers ever at this point, and I don't have an issue saying that. And in my mind, I had always looked at his 2011 and his matches with Ricochet as his real starting point of greatness, but I was sorely mistaken. Pac is killing it in 2010. I adored this match. Yeah, and the thing about this, and piggybacking a little bit what you said about Pac, it's not just that he's able to do these things, it's that he is already such a complete wrestler in this match that really took me aback here, because as you said, he was really pointed about when he decided to do splashes and dives we also knew, and he had enough background in it and was confident enough in it, know like, okay, Mike Quackenbush. Case, if you were going to wrestle Mike Quackenbush, what would, what style would you wrestle with Mike Quackenbush to try to get the best style match possible out of it? Uh, some version of Taco Bell Lucha that Quackenbush does, probably. All right. Uh, I was going to say, in Quack's mind, it's grappling. You know, okay. that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, the, the the stuff that Skyda taught you so you could feel better about yourself. Exactly. There we go. Uh, that that's probably the heaviest shot I've probably given Quackenbush ever on a podcast, and that's <laughs> and it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's considering other podcasts I've done about him. <laughs> but uh, he decides to go with Quack's strengths or his confidences here, and then him with Jigsaw. Other than the big splashes, him and Naruki Doi, and this is something that you talked a bit about. Pack Naruki Doi is one that if not top 10, but at least top 25 tag wrestlers of all time because they understood like, okay, in this style of match, Jigsaw should be the one that plays face in peril. And they played that perfectly here. And Pac's offense when they're doing like the double teams like this was so exceptional. And this was just a really cool sprint that had like the logical slowdown moments. And it was like, okay, we're changing pace after the matches we just had. We're going to do this here. And then there was also like this this one spot in this match that just took me aback that Quack got the uh, hit one of his Quack and Drivers. Don't ask me which one he named it. I don't care. <laughs> where he hit the Quack and Driver on Pack, and and then Naruki Doi came running in the ring, hit the ropes twice, 
and clocked him with one of the most brutal-looking Bakatari sliding kicks I've ever seen. It and I, if there's any match that like makes me like emote or go like oh shit or something like that, I know I'm in for something here, and that happened here, and I thought that was remarkable. I will give credit where credit's due. This was a really good Quackenbush match because more often than not, when he teams with Jigsaw, I'm coming away from it going like, man, Jigsaw is really good. Quack brought it here. I mean, Quack brought it against Pocket, was able to take all of his moves really well. And then he and Doi had some back and forth that were really, really exciting. And I don't know what to attribute that to. If Doi is just a little more accustomed to the American style of wrestling, if Quackenbush was having a, a just a really good night, I don't know what it is. But I went four and a quarter stars. I thought this match was phenomenal. I went three and three quarters, but that's also because I could tell with the next match coming up that it was going to be something special. And it didn't like cross that barrier with me in a way, but I thought that that was a remarkable and a, and a match worth going out of your way to see. Like seriously, this Quacksall run might be my favorite Mike Quackenbush that I've ever seen in his career. It's a really impressive string of matches that have gone under the radar. It's kind of like we talked about with the Gran Akuma matches. Right. You know, they're, they're a little less appreciated given the talent that is on this show and the matches, you know, the Shingo versus Davey, the Danielson versus Doi, the Mercury Rising Six Man. I mean, we're dealing with match of the year contenders on all these shows. So the Quacksauce, the Quacksauce stuff flies a little bit under the radar, but, you know, when you compile it into some weird Quackenbush compilation DVD that I don't advise <laughs> you doing, but if you were to do that, you would have a, a really nice string of matches with all of the Quack and Jigsaw DGUSA DG stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, there's this def- it definitely now, even though, like, the positive of this series has really, like, elevated BB Hulk or refreshed them in my mind, Quack has kind of, like, taken the back seat in a lot of ways. This match was a really nice one. And then after this match, Quackabush sadly took the microphone, said that they respect World 1, and Quack says, as I quote, he has no respect for Scruffy but Yamato, and Yamato should get out to the ring here. And my other note for Quack in this promo is that he's so cringe. He challenges Kamikaze USA to like a full completion tag match. I think the full complete, the biggest tag match is the line that was later in another Quack promo, sadly. But he challenges them again, and then Akira, Tozawa, and Akuma attack, and uh, Yamato delivers low blows, and then Tozawa, just being Tozawa, who, uh, you know, he never really played heel before this, did like the greatest mocking of the low blows I've seen in a while. Just keep in mind, this is a match between Chikara and World One, and Kamikaze still makes their presence felt. As for the Quackenbush promo, there's another one coming up, but I will I will give my comments then. Yep. After this, we had another promo. This was Jimmy Jacobs in the darkness. There was a single light over him. This must have been a really, uh, they must have had a lot of extra space in this venue for them to do, like have this area so dark where they filmed this after the ring was loaded out or before the ring was put up here, where he's just shouting at the darkness about John Moxley. It's the same promo he's kind of done before. This is one of the weaker ones there. And that leads us to a match that you won't find on cage match case this next match. I know. It uh, caught me by surprise. I thought when we reviewed Open the Northern Gate, the tag with the four local Canadian wrestlers, I thought uh, that match was going to end with Brody Lee coming out and killing all of them. But instead, that match happened here as Rip Impact, who was very over, and Johnny Wayne, who was not so over, uh, two guys from the GGUSA seminar slash tryout, made their way to the ring as uh, somewhat of a showcase of, you know, what the local guys can do. But before they could wrestle, Brody Lee came out made his presence felt in Dragon Gate USA. I am all about this. 
Yeah, maybe it is now that Brody Lee is back as Brody Lee and he's been able to kind of be back in a feature role. It's great seeing Brody Lee just demolish people. He was he's always been so great at it, and he just laid out all these guys with brutal looking lariats, uh big boss men slams, and then power bombs, and I just was having a great time with this. After that, he grabbed the microphone and he said he's the biggest and baddest guy in the locker room, and he will take out anyone at any time. So Brody Lee is now part of this promotion for the next few years. I just, I want to say real quick, and it's not the show to get into this, and other people have made this point. I'm not reinventing the wheel with what I'm about to say, but you watch this segment with Brody Lee, and the sheer intensity of his offense, and then the conviction in which he speaks and then we talked about John Moxley earlier and how I would walk on my bare feet to wherever John Moxley told me to if he cut a promo in the right context. Pro wrestling is not that hard. And it is such a shame that guys are spending prime years of their career in a company that makes everything so damn complicated. Because in, in five minutes, Brody Lee is over and I know his motivations and it's not hard. And I am going to continue to enjoy Brody Lee until he signs with the company that cut his charisma off and made him mid card fodder. Yeah. Like this is even here, decent promo from a guy who at this time was not known as a promo guy as well. They really found a good way to fuck him up. Didn't they? Yeah. Unfortunately, the promo that follows not so great. Mike, if you want to take that away, my only note I have here is Quacksaw promote vengeance from a bathroom. They apparently did not get the dark room. Everyone else got the dark room. They got the bathroom. They promoted. That's a good point. Well, I, I was <laughs> going to bring up that they were in the bathroom, but they're the only team that cut a promo in a bathroom. Why were they in there? I mean, maybe that there's been stories about like how this promotion was very segregated between Dragon Gate people and the North American wrestlers. Maybe this is the North American wrestlers. <laughs> bathroom or stars <laughs> shingo is running the locker room like he's jbl and he's making the chikara guys change in the hallway i hope that happened yeah no that that, that i i mean we'll, we'll we could save that moment for wrestlemania miami where there are some big stories about the divergence <laughs> of that there but uh yeah so they promised vengeance and the biggest tag match in case you held your tongue earlier when i was talking about the quacksaw promo so the floor is yours uh, my point isn't even really on the promos. I mean, Quackenbush is cutting these G-rated promos that sound utterly ridiculous on the same show as a John Moxley or a Jimmy Jacobs, and and he should have recognized that, and he should have adapted. It's not the promotion's fault that Quackenbush doesn't want to say a bad word. He quite honestly doesn't need to, but when he censors his language in such a weird way, it just comes off as childish and stupid. The thing that stuck out to me here was they challenged Kamikaze USA to this big match in Philadelphia, and I was sitting there going like, well, you know, and I don't know the result of the match that ends up taking place in Philly. I, I think I do, but I don't know for sure because I, I don't remember watching that match or I don't have any memories of it. But I'm sitting here going like, well, who cares? I mean, Chikara's lost all of their matches anyways. You know, if they get one win over Kamikaze, why does it matter? And then I went and looked at the results of all the shows we've watched, and they beat Yamato and Akuma at Untouchable Gate. They beat Tozawa and Akuma the night before, and they've been winning almost all of their matches. They beat the Young Bucks, but 
the Kamikaze USA post-match beatdowns have been so brutal that they've stripped away any sort of glory that the Chikara Sekigun has to a point that I forgot they were winning all of these matches because in my mind, Kamikaze USA has been so much more dominant. And I don't know what to do with that as a viewer. If it's my fault that the wins didn't stick out uh, enough in my mind, or if Kamikaze USA is just too strong of a presence on these shows to the point that they've neutered any sort of glory that Quackenbush and Jigsaw might have had. Well, I feel like that there is some neutering of that, but I think also when you look at who these groups are and who is a part of these groups, like like if you were an indie fan at the time, you undoubtedly would have seen Jigsaw and Mike Quackenbush, and they would have been the figures in the area— but also, like, Shingo and Yamato, when you compare, like, those two groups of people, like, there is a pretty significant divergence there, at least from, like, when you see one group of guys and you see the other group of guys, which ones you think are the ones that are going to really kick your ass, you know? So, like, I feel like there is also that, there's also perception one as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. All right. Speaking of guys who can kick your ass, the next match was the first half of our double main event case. It was the team that would soon be called CK1. I don't think that they really were called CK1 at this time. That wouldn't come for nearly a decade later. Facing the Kamikaze USA team of Yamato and Shingo Takagi in this match, it was the Kamikaze USA team defeating Warriors, Shima, and uh, and Dragon Kid in 22 minutes and 50 seconds when Shingo Takagi hit the stay dream on Dragon Kid. In case I this was my match of the night, I absolutely like, was losing it during this match. Mike, it's the only time this match has happened. Which really? Which, you, you think about... Exactly. You, I, It blows me away. This isn't even a... I've been praising Gabe for him finding fresh and exciting Dragon Gate matchups throughout these cards. This is just a comment on just how is this the only time that Shima and Dragon Kid versus Yamato and Shingo happened? It's amazing, given that these guys were... Uh, in the company from, you know, Yamato debuts in 2006 becomes more of a factor in 2007. Shingo leaves in 2018. So you're looking at 11 years with my messed up math that I just did. You're looking at really 11 years in the company together. Four of the top guys in the promotion. This is the only straight two versus two match between uh, the Shima and Dragon Kid team versus the Shingo and Yamato team. My match of the night as well. Uh, the match was promoted as being uh, uh, the next step in the feud between Shingo and Dragon Kid. But for me, Mike, the thing that stuck out to me here was the chemistry be- between Shima and Yamato. Yeah, like, this was just a really incredible match from, like, all four guys. Shima and Yamato went to, like, straight murder mode of each other at certain points in this match, which is something that, like, when Shima turns it on, usually it's something that he's angry or motivated. And when Yamato does it, it's just something you don't see very often. Like, this... You don't really see like a murder mode Yamato in 2020. Like I can't. Well, it's yeah. I, we we had just been talking. Uh, I think earlier today. I don't know. My days are all kind of blended together. But but <laughs> it you happens. Can tell it happens. It, there is a very clear uh, Shima touring match of just like okay, it's, you know Shima's gonna go out there three and a half stars for an audience, whatever. Uh, it felt like he was 
pushing Yamato and that he was trying to get something out of Yamato, who at this time is the Open the Dreamgate champion. He's the top guy in Japan, and I think Shima recognized that when he has a chance to be put in a spot with the Dreamgate champion. He wants to push the Dreamgate champion to his limits, both from a kayfabe perspective, but then he also wants that performer to hit that next level, and that's what I think Shima was doing here again. It's a built around Shingo and Dragon Kid, but the interactions that the other two people in this match had, they opened the Dreamgate champion Yamato, and at the time, Dragongate's icon and Shima. That is why you need to watch this show, is to see those two go at it. And I will take the Shingo side here. Shingo was the person that really took me back in this match case, other than the murder mode here, because this was one of the like, true times we saw Shingo really work heel before he, like, he did have the run in Real Hazard for that bit but he really was like blood generation was a heal unit for a certain period of time but quickly kind of had the split you had muscle outlaws and blood generation but you had shingo here do a lot of the heal mannerisms that he would not do when he was younger like just like just being like a cocky prick like he would be a heel but it would be like in the dragon gate style prick not being mr selfish like i saw things i was like oh wait this is definitely how he was in berserk and antios like did you pick up on that at all as well because that definitely came out especially with 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 shingo and dragon kid in this match i thought like that was something that like all four of them like we've talked about how shima performed up to the level knowing he was in the ring with the dragon gate champion he brought the side out of yamato which i would say would be him bringing it out of yamato i think that's a fair assessment to make but we also had like the the focus of the match was around these two guys and we saw shades of shingo here that were not happening at this time did not really happen before and wouldn't happen again really for another five years so we're about to enter just from a match quality perspective when you're looking at Drangate USA and Drangate Japan and the mysterious Drangate UK footage that is out there. We're about to enter a golden era of match quality for Shingo Takagi. And I'm someone, I just watched his debut match a few weeks ago. I've been watching as much 2005 Drangate as I can get my hands on. Less than a year into the company, he's having legitimately great matches and is very clearly a talented wrestler. But that the, those outputs are built off of his ambition. This desire he has to be great in 2010 in 2010 he is great and we are seeing that confidence that would come in that that gym class bully mantra that shingo would later take on he is testing that out and workshopping that against dragon kid because it's such a natural pro wrestling dynamic because even though you know it's not like Shingo's all that tall. I mean, he and Dragon Kid are both short guys, short kings. Shout out Mike Spears, shout out Aaron Bentley. They're (laughs) short kings, but, you know, Shingo just presents himself as this monster. I jokingly compared Shingo to JBL a few minutes ago. Well, there's a moment in this match where Shingo hits a pumping bomber on Dragon Kid, that lariat, where it looks like he straight up runs through Dragon Kid. I mean, JBL wishes he could throw his phony-ass clothesline from hell as well as Shingo Takagi through this pumping bomber. We are seeing the first traces of a guy that I consider to be one of the 25 greatest wrestlers of all time. The foundation for that path to glory is starting here and it is ever so present in this Shima and Dragon Kid versus Shingo Takagi and Yamato match. Yeah, and just to throw back on something that we talked about probably earlier, definitely was a Stan Hansen like pumping bomber. Like, <laughs> yes, there was a lot of so. bicep and elbow 
connecting right into Dragon Kid. And my note for there was that pumping bomber Shingo gives DK looks like that sucked because that. Oh god, it was disgusting. But like the the big point I wanted to make about this. Now that we've kind of talked about the guys here. I mentioned earlier about how they had two distinctly different tag matches on the show. We had more of a sprint Dragon Gate style match in the first one. And this was really kind of like an old school tag match in a lot of ways where it was built around them all being up on Dragon Kid. Shima would come in, but they were able to eventually neutralize, get Dragon Kid in again. And that's what it kind of like built to. And the idea of like the closing stretch of this match where Dragon Kid virtually gave Shingo all he had and it was not enough. And I feel like that that was such like a very powerful image of that. He goes for the Ultra Karana, Hurricane Rana, misses it. Goes for the Bible, misses it. He like goes for like all these, like his important moves that he's put away people with before, even though the size disparity and like just the general thing of like, this is how Dragon Kid gets out of situations. He'll go for the Kriso, he'll go for the Bible. He goes for the Panam, he goes for the Bermuda Triangle. And it did not work. And he was still able to fight and struggle. Like there was a moment where there was all this struggle for this made in Japan that was one of the more brutal looking made in Japans I've ever seen because that could only really happen because of how much bigger Shingo Takagi is than Dragon Kid. Like even in New Japan today, there's very few wrestlers that he's probably faced that were the size of Dragon Kid throughout his career. There's only like Dragon Kid and then UT. Like those are the people that are like that small to do this to where he's able to feel like this overwhelming presence that eventually he's like, okay, this, this shit is not going down. Well, time to time to carry him up on the turnbuckle on my shoulders and and kill him with the stage dream and i thought that that was such an effective way of telling a match here that i know that you were so focused on yamato and shima having this great kind of chemistry and shima bringing something out of yamato but i keep on going back to this and how this match was portrayed so differently than the quacksaw versus world one tag match earlier on the show yeah, no, I mean, well, and it, and it makes sense in a way, given that it's four completely different wrestlers in this match and it is the prior match. I, I think, and, and you had mentioned this to me when we were talking about the show before I went on the air, it's four wrestlers in this match who just had the, the crowd eating out of the palm with their hands. There's that spot, it's almost hard to put into words, but, uh, you know, they're doing like that go-around spot yes. where it's, yes. it's Yamato and Shima and they're and Shingo is looking to Larry at Shima and they're just going back and forth and back and forth and they do it to a point that it becomes a comedy spot but it doesn't dampen the value and the intensity of the match it's just they are working to the live audience in a way that is so natural and so compelling and it is so great to see and it's something that you like you look at and for a match like this they had the crowd just reacting to them doing the go-behinds. And they went a lot longer than usually you see a go-behinds where because they know they could get the crowd in the palm of their hands. And I think that really like shows, even for like Dragon Kid and Shima at this time, would have been 13 to 12 to 13-year veterans. Uh, Shingo Takagi debuted in 2004. Yamato debuted in 2005. It really shows you like where these guys were. like The fact that you had these two wrestling prodigies and these two wise legends that were like, okay... We understand what we can do here. And just was like a remarkable thing that I totally get how the Toronto audience was like cracking up a little bit in this incredibly serious match. I think that just shows a, a level of genius here that I think I was stunned when I saw the review. And we'll get into the show review where Dave Meltzer only gave us four stars. It's absurd. I gave this four and a half. It Same. should be noted another 
dominant display from Kamikaze USA. Just something to keep in mind. Just something to keep in mind. Something definitely to keep in mind here. So we had that. Then we got to revisit our, our good friend Johnny. As Johnny was freaking out and does not know what side he's going to choose. And I, I think that's a good idea to keep Johnny Gargano in everyone's mind. But it was just such like a... Uh, just out there thing to happen like right after this match leading into the main event just having johnny gargano there like i didn't dislike it it just was like oh oh right johnny gargano is watching this show to see who he wants to join up with yeah johnny gargano did a thing in this promo where he didn't know the names of any of the wrestlers he just kept on saying those japanese guys which i actually i thought it was it was fitting to the johnny gargano character so it's another really solid promo from him yeah, it's another solid promo for him where his character is clearly defined that Johnny Gargano lives in his own little world, that he's the star of the world. And if you, as long as you keep that in mind, like, I know how Johnny Gargano is now, but this made sense here. And I thought that was pretty well done. And that leads us to the main event. It was for the Open the Freedom Gate Championship as Masato Yoshino made his defense that was challenged at on, uh, on Mercury Rising 2010 in Phoenix. So everything was blown up here. Fresh off of his feud-ending win, against Dragon Kid, Masato Yoshino would challenge BB Hulk for the Open the Freedom Gate title. He would only challenge as BB Hulk would make his defense in 15 minutes and 40 seconds with the EVOP. I believe that was BB Hulk's fourth defense. Yes, it was his third defense, fourth match for the title. And I thought this was solid, but it just was such a come down. So I was not sure how this match was going to play out because we had just witnessed two great, distinct style tag matches in BB Hulk singles matches, you know, they, they can, they can sort of trail off at times and they, they are not always the most compelling uh, matches, especially when there's no clear face heel dynamic. Like there, there wasn't in this match, but my God, I mean, it's 15 minutes. It's very compact. I really liked what they brought to the table in the back half of this match, especially kind of starting when to reference the thing that I was blown away by earlier, Masato Yoshino goes to lightning spiral BB Hulk and Hulk backflips out of it, which I have never seen him do that before. That was such an incredible counter. He then is basically met with more Yoshino offense. He gets slapped and then is hit with a lightning spiral kicks out at 2.9 in a brilliant kick out and then really unloads the tank on Masato Yoshino to finally put him away. They threw everything they had out there. This was a defense that I think made BB Hulk look like a stronger champion because Yoshino came in with so much momentum and then Hulk had to throw everything he had at him, but he threw just enough at him. It was finally able to put down Yoshino in a main event that I gave four stars to. You know, I was on the, uh, this was not my aggressively four stars. I'm like, okay, this is four stars. I'm over it. Like I, I went three and three quarters on this. I think the thing that kind of was, it got me the, uh, step down and like this match. But after I saw this match, I thought it was kind of remarkable. Like when you think about this in the context of, and maybe this is me reading too much into it. I fully admit that I probably am here. Think about the week that BB Hulk and Masato Yoshino had. Yoshino is coming off of a two out of three falls match. He is coming out of the uh, dead or alive match that we talked about on the last episode, which was a crazy match. So he's coming out this like these are two guys who are even at this age, which I mean, 10 years ago, that would put Yoshino at, I believe, 30 and 29. So I believe that's right. I'm probably wrong there. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. But 
the fact that this was like a 15-minute match where basically they had the opening stretch. And then basically, as you said, Masato Yoshino emptied the tank and then BB Hulk took it. And I was like, okay, I weathered that. Now I'm putting this guy down now. And I thought that that was very smart storytelling. And I think like the idea that seeing how over the lightning spiral is and how they've protected lightning spiral, the fact that you get BB Hulk to kick out of it like six minutes into the match, I think that's actually a pretty inspired idea. And yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was just agreeing with you. I, I thought that was very, very inspired. I thought it was very interesting that they chose to do that this way. It just was a match where, like, he it wasn't just like the backflip evade he did for like the lariat. BB Hulk did a version of the mouse, a move again that's out of his move set now. I would not want to do the mouse now if I had BB Hulk's body. Would you? Like, no, the, no, 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 no. Just like a, a match like this, it might have been the most impressive mouse he had in his career. Just because it's the, a ridiculous looking move. I mean, I yeah, the, the curmudgeons of the world would say it maybe lacks psychology. I don't know. I I like the way it looks. I like the way it sets things up. But it's an insane physical feat to jump off of somebody running at you and to do a backflip out of that is is not normal. Quite honestly, it, it's insane. It's insane. So he did that, and then he goes and does like. The H Thunder, which is another move where it's like his over-the-shoulder pile driver. Another move he doesn't do anymore. Don't blame him. And he makes this stuff look like so believable. And as like he won the title at Freedom Gate. And we've seen him against Dragon Kid. We've seen him against Naruki Doi. Now we see him through Masato Yoshino. And the previous matches I thought were all solid to very good. This was a match that even at three and three, three quarter stars, I'm totally on board with you here. And then like, this is a match where bb hulk felt like the champion he had a champion's performance so i'm gonna hand it back to you a sec just to like look at the the week and a half that uh masato yoshino had leading up to this i won't go too long on this had 17 minute match and a trios match against warriors that uh dead or alive match that went almost 30 minutes the match against dragon kid 20 minutes match against masato yoshino uh the match against bb hulk 15 minutes and then a match against uh, Ryo Saito and Dragon Kid. Basically, as soon as he got back into Japan, another 13-minute match. Yeah, and it should be worth noting, uh, if you have not seen the Dead or Alive 2010 show that is currently on the Dragon Gate Network, the most essential match from that show is the World 1 uh, tag match with Masato Yoshino, because as Jay, uh, Drangi, Jay pointed out on his Twitter a few days ago, that is the start of Masato Yoshino being looked at as a main eventer. That is an all-time performance from Yoshino, whereas up to this point, you know, he's a brave gate guy, he's a tag team guy, he's maybe the second most dominant force in a trios team. This is the start of Yoshino becoming... Uh, what he would later become, which is the ace of the company, and now in a post-Shima universe, Masato Yoshino was a Mr. Dragon Gate, and that all really starts to transpire at the start of this decade, at the beginning of the 2010s, and this is the start of it. From Dead or Alive to the big singles matches here, that's that's another thing to point out is, you know, Yoshino is in the thick of the speed muscle glory run at this point. Right. And he goes to Canada and has not one, but two great singles matches, both main eventing the DGUSA shows. That is huge. That is a really big deal for Masato Yoshino at this point. Worth noting on that dead or alive show, the last 13 minutes of that match. So 
half of the match, basically, was one-on-two between Gamma and Shima. And Yoshino beat both of them. Like the final and they fall, will they will eat you alive, too. Those who will eat you alive. And a lot of the match was worked on the idea that World 1 was outclassed. The idea that, like, you, they eliminated Doi immediately. And then it basically became, okay, these veterans from Torimon are, are on a constant advantage. Like, you, you had Tanizaki defeat Horiguchi soon after. But then right after that, Shima defeated Horiguchi. Then Hulk defeated Saito. Then it really became, like, a tag match only for, like, a minute until it became two-on-one for the remainder of the match. So... This is like a key thing. We will talk more about the elevation of Masato Yoshino on the next episode because that is a big factor leading into Enter the Dragon 2010. But it's definitely something that needs to be stated. He had probably like just taking back like the return match. These three matches, like as you said, really are the start of the defining period of Masato Yoshino's career. And something that will be very important going into 2011, 2012 and then coming out of Blood Warriors Junction 3. For sure. And that is, and then right after Hulk made the defense, John Moxley came out and called BB Hulk a target. He said, at any time, in any place, Kamikaze USA is going to come after you because you have the Open the Freedom Gate title. You have the belt that matters here. And then they immediately get attacked by Yamato and Shingo. Jimmy Jacobs makes a save, which got a huge pop, actually. And then he took out Moxley, so it came back to two on two. Shima and Dragon Kid came out, and I, I missed the point. Like, I looked down to write notes, and I saw that Tozawa and uh, Akuma were already out there. Did they come out before CK1? I believe so. Okay, so they came out and basically neutralized them, so it was just CK1 and then Yoshino and Hulk. Yoshino and Hulk go in the back. Uh, Hulk leaves his Freedom Gate title in the ring. Shima fucks around with it for a second, and they do the go-home proto where they promise to come back to Toronto. Here's the thing. This was a great go home segment that felt uh, meaningless after the constant Kamikaze USA presence on this show. If they're going to do this angle, there's no reason for Kamikaze USA to come out after the Chikara versus World One tag. Again, I understand the reasoning for the finish on the Mox Jacobs feud, given right. that they want it to continue, that Shingo and Yamato should probably come out and do something, but. I, I don't know. I just, I get that they want them to be a killer unit, but, you know, they're winning most of these matches anyways. Moxley feels unhinged and dangerous. I think specifically just the, the Chikara World 1 thing really rubbed me the wrong way because it's maybe a little unfair to say that Kamikaze USA, well, they're in every segment on the show because there's six matches on the show and, you know, their guys are in four of the matches. But the fact that they continue to make their presence felt in matches they're not in, it's just like, all right, I, I get it. Like, you guys are tough, but, you know, it's it's enough. I, I think the go-home angle would have been so much more effective had there not been the prior run-ins throughout the show. Yeah, and really the uh, Chikarasaki gun versus World 1-1 one, one is something that they clearly could have done backstage. You know, you didn't, yes. have, you didn't have to do that one out in front of the crowd. Totally understand how Moxley's portrayed, how his raw animal charisma attracts people to him, how Yamato and Shingo, like, they've already well-defined that, that he will call upon them and they will come out and attack people to help out John Moxley in the past. So I'm okay with that, but... It does feel like at this point, especially after a show that, you know, this there was not a lot of filler on this show. Like, if you watch this on pay-per-view, you didn't get the uh, Akuma versus uh, Tyson Dukes match. 
So you really had no filler on it, and that would even more so have Kamikaze USA feel omnipresent on the show. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, the, Things are changing in Drangate USA, and the next show we hit is the one-year anniversary show, which is hard to believe. Yes, we will get to that. Uh, just want to touch on a couple notes in The Observer before we close out here. Uh, Meltzer gave Tazawa and Mochizuki three and a quarter stars. I think that's a travesty. That's at least a three and a half star match case. And then, At least. <clears throat> at least. Uh, Moxley and Jacobs got three and a quarter. Uh, he thought that uh, the idea that Jacobs kicked out at one was something that I did not really get was a big moment in that match. Uh, Pack versus uh, uh, pa- uh, the uh, Pack and Doi match versus Quacksaw. He talked about how this was Pack's uh, Canada. He said U.S. debut. But that's not the case. We've talked about Pack's history before. They should look at him for the X Division case. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sure that'll work out nicely. I'm sure that'll work out nicely. And they said uh, Pack used probably the craziest over the shit. Was was used probably. Here's a day of sense. Let me. If this reads weirdly, it's because Dave Zenz packed, used probably the most over of the show, a springboard top rope corkscrew moonsault to the show. I don't get that sense, do you? No, I do not know what you're trying to say. Neither do I, but that's what Dave wrote. Gave that four stars. Uh, mentioned uh, the uh, Brody Lee. He said, I don't know how big he is legit, but he looked like a monster in a promotion filled with small guys. Uh, gave uh, CK1 versus Shingo Yamato four stars. Uh, he didn't call it the stadium. He called it a Death Valley bomb, which is not right. And then he gave uh, the uh, Freedom Gate shot three and three quarters. He he called the mouse a drop kick like Doug Furness laying on his feet. <laughs> uh, the only thing Baby Hulk and Doug Furness have in common, possibly. Yeah, uh, he thought that the post brawl celebration was good for the live show in the building, but he thought it was in, that went too long for pay per view. So that's Dave Meltzer's notes. We all have so many of uh, Dave Meltzer for show reviews, so I wanted to make sure we hit on that before we ended this episode. Should we run down what Enter the Dragon 2010 is going to be? Because it's because as you said, times are changing. Times sure as fuck change very quickly with the show. Yes, Mike, they are sure as fuck changing. I, I <laughs> sorry, can't believe I, your language there. Sorry goodness. I did a cuss there, but I felt like it was appropriate <laughs> to do a cuss right there at that moment because this show... Yes, Remember, I've got the card. Yeah, I've got the go, card go pulled up it. right here. Yeah. We open up. It's the Drangate icon Shima against Johnny Gargano. We have a fresh faces four way with the following names Eric Cannon, Chuck Taylor, Adam Cole, and Ricochet. A singles match between Drake Younger and Naruki Doi. BB Hulk is going to defend the Open the Freedom Gate title against Masaki Mochizuki. We have another debut, a double debut, Scott Reed versus Rich Swan. Both of those men would go on to spend time in Japan. An eight-man tag team elimination match. It is a Chikara second gun of Hollow Wicked, Jigsaw, and Mike Quackenbush. And their World One ally, Masato Yoshino, and they're going to take on Kamikaze USA and Akira Tozawa, Gran Akuma, John Moxley, and Yamato. A case. It, there's one person you didn't mention in Kamikaze USA in that match. Who's that? Well, that would be the main event. Oh. Mike, you set me up. Look at you go. The main event match of the Dragon USA one-year anniversary show, Enter the Dragon 2010. We are going to be talking about Brian Danielson versus Shingo Takagi. Guys, there, it's, a two, it's an interesting two months, dear listeners, between 
the events of May 7th and May 8th, 2010, and what happens at the ECW arena on July 24th, 2010. You know how, how, my, how many notes we had for talking about the whole entire thing about the fallout leading up to WrestleMania weekend? We, we got some stuff we're going to need to talk about before we get into the show. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> just, just, just wanted like prepare people. I've already started to do some research on this. There's a lot of stuff that's going to get real interesting, and this is a real big, this is wrestling in 2010 moment happening on the show with Brian Danielson and Shingo Takaki. But yeah, this is a ma- this is a show I definitely remember, and I remember like going out my mind for. So I'm really stoked that we will be reviewing this show next week. Yeah, no, I'm very excited about it. Uh, It should be a great show. And in the meantime, you can always find me on Twitter at underscore in your case. Uh, If you need Kenta Kobashi match recommendations, I am the person to turn to, apparently. Uh, So you can follow me there. And then the at Open Voice Gate Twitter, where both Mike and I are tweeting from. Lots of fun content there. Yeah, I I noticed that at least when we were recording. Oh, our dear friend Davey Richards was brought up as the idea of, I know that Rich was finally re-watching some DGUSA, but we're always on there. If there's interesting news updates, if there's interesting releases, we make sure to have it there. You can find me at Fujihaya. I usually am either tweeting about Dragon Gate stuff or just my own personal existential nightmares. <laughs> one or the other. One or the other. It's usually one or the other on that, you know? I mean... I have I've had my tracksuit phase. Now I'm looking into my sun my summer of discontent. You know I can feel that urge rising. But that's gonna do it here for Case. I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time. And open the voice gate. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.